Trinity Church, how are you doing today? It was great to hear that. That's good news. You surprised me this morning. I love it. Great to see you this second Sunday of October. I missed you. I was away last weekend and just didn't, I uh, was uh, up visiting uh, my daughter, Kendi, and at a conference. And so really, I was thinking about it this week, though. It was just one of those weeks I was like, man, I really miss being with the family of Trinity Church. So I'm so glad to be back. Bill did a great job moving us back into a new series in John 11 and 12, these next couple of months, October and November. We'll take a break for Christmas and then get back to the Gospel of John in January. And so within that, um, did a great job talking about this incredible miracle that will be the baseline for where we begin today. Jesus raised a man who was four days dead, okay? We want to be careful, even if you grew up in Sunday school with the blue felt board and the flannel graph, we want to be careful not to just read right over that. I don't remember the last time I've heard of that happening. And those kinds of things should draw our attention to the great grandeur of who we've been singing about today, this great Jesus and what he's done for us. So I'm so glad to be back with you, and we'll dive in. If you have a Bible, you can find your way. John chapter 11, we'll look at the tail end of that chapter together. If you need notes, we have paper copies in the back, digital copy in the app. If you want to find your way there, resources, sermon notes, today's date. And so grateful for that. But I have a few things I want to tell you about as you're kind of getting going into that mode. They all relate to really one of our core values is that God loves your family, and so do we. And all of these kind of relate to our family ministries and things that are just kind of going on around us. One is a huge thanks to Steve Springstead, Carrie Gephardt, uh, Brian Lintz had been doing a lot of work previous to yesterday, and then this crew of 30 who came out and laid sod in our eastern, what was formerly part of our parking lot, and is now this beautiful grass field. So we are so excited for that. Can we thank them this morning? <clears throat> From old to young, they're feeling it today. <laughs> But it was so great just to be out there and just to see this muddy field become just this beautiful patchwork of green sod that as it kind of takes root and gets watered well, we're excited about that space. And that space came out of our staff being incredibly thoughtful and agile in the midst of the pandemic, thinking about what are outdoor spaces that we can just either enhance, like we have out on the lawn over here with our cafe lights and what we kind of refer to our backstop, that whole area. And then this other plan was put in place back then as well to have really another additional, just great outdoor lawn space that our kids, our students, our families are gonna utilize. So we're so excited for that and just are grateful that those plans have come together and look forward to how that's gonna be utilized in some really great, meaningful ways. The second one is this, is that related to our family ministries, part of for some of us, our mode of family is grandparenting. And you're in that mode, whether your grandkids live locally or around the world. And so there is a grandparenting summit coming up later on this month on the 20th and 21st. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't taken a moment to sign up for that, uh, Paul will be out on the plaza after this service. And it is going to be a simulcast coming out of, I believe it's Alabama, Arkansas, one of those A states from the South. Okay, you pick. But it's coming from there. And it's going to be uh, remotely uh, uh, brought here into our campus. It's going to be right here in the worship center. Paul expects people not only from Trinity, but all over our area that'll come and be a part of that. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't taken a moment to sign up, do that today, later on this month. It's going to be a powerful time Thursday and Friday uh, later on in October. The final thing is this. Our elders have asked if we would, you, uh, I think that was up here last week, sharing about an update of things going on. We're really taking very seriously the need to continue to communicate well with our church family. And so one of those things, they asked me to give an update on our student ministries pastor search. You'll note today the Hilkema family's here. They drive tomorrow. And so make sure after this service today that you take some time to go over and wish them well as they trek out of California. But as we have been, Hilke kind of put me in the loop on that on the end of uh, July. So we've had some time to begin looking uh, at some different resumes and talking to some people. And I wanted you to know, one thing we're very committed to is finding the right person. We 
I have been involved in other things over the course of 29 years of ministry and even growing up in church and just seeing when churches jump the gun, we, need, we have a need, let's get it filled and maybe have gone for or settled on what was less than what God's desire might have been for that role at that particular church. That's something we're committed not to do, but committed instead to say, God, we're going to follow this out. We have some great vetting um, pieces in play that Hilke was using before on a different search, and so we're grateful for that. So in that, we have three different people that we're talking to about this role right now, and that's all I can really give you an update-wise, but I did want you to know it's in motion, and we'll keep you aware as more pieces come together for that. Let's take a minute, though, right now. I just want to pray for the Hilkemas as they take off, and Thank God again for them. You may have had a chance to be there at our gathering a couple Sundays ago. Whether you did or didn't today, make sure you go and appreciate and just share love with them today. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for Hilke and Jody. I want to thank you for Noah. I want to thank you for Ellie, and I want to thank you for Josiah. I want to thank you for them as a family, um, both together collectively as well as individually. And I want to thank you for the imprint that they have made, the impact they have made on the lives of Trinity Church these last 15 years. We pray for them today. Today will no doubt be some bittersweet parts of what is going on in their Redlands experience, but we pray as they load up cars tomorrow and begin to drive east, we just pray for a rich time being together, seeing parts of the country maybe they've never seen before, and really doing that as a family unit, looking forward to the adventure that awaits. And so we just pray blessing on them today. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, let's clap for them. We love and appreciate them. Well, as we dive into these couple of chapters of the Gospel of John, one thing that caught my attention reading the narratives and listening to Jesus teach were these concepts of life and death. And what we're going to see in almost every single sequence is some clarity related to either this concept of people stepping into life because of their faith and belief that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, or them moving farther and farther into a spiritual death. Last week, even a physical death that was transformed and, and made alive, but there, as, and that death is always represented by people not believing, not putting their faith in who Jesus is and who he's offering himself to be. And so in those contrasts, that's what we see. And I was thinking of this phrase, you know, we talk about it all the time. This is a, a life and death situation, right? Well, it'll grab our attention very quickly. And so we just kind of reversed those concepts and said, this couple of chapters of John look a lot like death and life. And, and most times when we look, we're going to see people moving from death to life. Sadly enough, today, we're going to see Pharisees and other religious leaders sticking in death. And so today's message, I don't usually talk about the title, but it's just called the Pharisee's death. And death because of their staunch unbelief in who Jesus is and what he came to do. And that's what we're going to circle around today. And we're going to see this glimmer of hope in the middle of it where John is going to give us some commentary. And he's going to remind us what did Jesus not only come to do, what did he accomplish in bringing the scattered children of God together and making us one. So I'm excited to dive into this passage with you today. Here's our now what statement on the screens in your notes. Walk in the unity that is intended through the accomplished mission of Jesus that makes us the children of God. So there is an interesting implication today about unity. Walk in the unity that is intended through the accomplished mission of Jesus that makes us children of God. Number one in your notes today, miracles are often divisive, leading some to faith and others to antagonism. And that, this won't be the first time we've seen this in John's gospel, but let's dive in. Your Bibles are open to John chapter 11, verse 45. John writes, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. So this miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead, they put their faith in Christ but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. 
All right, so we dive in, and this is on right this what we're looking at, what we just read immediately follows this amazing miracle of Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead. I, I love this. And, and in it, what we have to understand, you know, I've even interacted with people, honestly, maybe even some of you have had what we would call not even just a near-death experience, but clinically using that concept, you were dead on the table. Okay, those things happen. And then our ability to do amazing things medically today, we're able to revive people and bring them back. So far, as good as I can tell, four days dead is a whole different category, okay? So much so, I remember I grew up in, a, in an era in a church, most churches use the King James Version of the Bible, and I, it was either Mary or Martha in last week's text, oh Lord, don't roll back the stone for he stinketh, okay? So I mean, this, this is like he's dead dead. Like, it's not just he's been dead for a few minutes, an hour or two, maybe we could do some, he's dead dead. And I just want you to think about that. Get into the moment. Throughout John's gospel, I've encouraged us many times, find yourself in the story. Find yourself as one of Jesus' disciples because that's most clear and connected to who you are. You're a 21st century version of that. Imagine that you're one of the 12 and you've come with Jesus. You have no idea what he's going to do. And you're wondering in your head, just like Mary and Martha said, why didn't we leave sooner? Jesus has healed all kinds of people. Why in the world didn't we leave? And you're watching this whole thing take place and you're hearing Jesus say to the people, move back the stone. And you're going, this is not gonna go well. Not only does he stinketh, but it's just gonna be like weird. Like what in the earth could he do now? And imagine as a man walking out of that hole in the stone. Imagine what you are thinking and feeling in that moment. Imagine if you were one of the people in that crowd mourning with Mary and Martha. Imagine if you had been one of the ones just a few days ago who said meaningful things about Lazarus at his funeral. And there he is. Imagine you're at a meal later on that day and you see Lazarus laughing. You see him eating. You see him hugging people looking very much alive. Imagine what that would have done to you and your confidence in who Jesus is. I think we would have all been asking the question, what can't he do? And that's what he came to demonstrate. He has power and authority over everything, including sin and death. And so in this reality, in this sequence, by the way, I got a new iPad, and the problem is I haven't tuned it yet to let me open it without punching in some numbers. So if you see me doing a lot of this today, it's because Todd's not really great technology-wise, so I'm going to have to figure out how to have Tomas help me with that. Exactly. We're, we're, living, it, we're living it together, bro. Um, so imagine what this does is it causes people, rightly so, to place their faith, their confidence, Jesus, you are who you say you are. But it has an equally interesting effect where a group of people who either were there or who have come in contact with Mary, Martha, and now the alive Lazarus, they go and they run to the Pharisees. And now, interestingly enough, this isn't the first time we've seen this happen. When Jesus healed a man who had been born blind, another group, similar, maybe the same group, ran to tell the Pharisees what had happened. And I think as you process, what is this group doing? Are they like tattletales? You know, we're going to go run and snitch on Jesus. I, I really don't, I don't think it's that simple. I think on the one hand, there may have been a group within this group that's kind of sitting here and they're aware of the evidence. Let's say it was actually the same group of people or some members from when Jesus had healed this man born blind. And they're going, they want to go to the Pharisees and say, what do you say about this guy? What is your kind of stamp of approval of our religious leaders of our law? What do you say about him? I could see that as a reasonable reason to go and find out what do the, what do the Pharisees think about this? That no one has ever done this stuff before. But what also may be true is people seeing this miracle, it's hard to deny it. You knew Lazarus. You knew he had died. 
Now you see him walking around very much alive. This might have rubbed them in such a way, just like we're going to see with the Pharisees themselves, that causes this group of people to really want to find out, what are you doing about this guy? Not what do you think about him, but what are you going to do about him? Because he is messing everything From whatever motivation, the Bible doesn't give us that understanding, but from whatever motivation, a group goes and they tell the Pharisees what's been going on. The Pharisees are called this special meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, we had said back in John chapter 3 when Jesus has this really significant conversation with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. We had seen he wasn't just a Pharisee, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And we talked about that a little bit then. This was 70 men who literally were the highest set of rulers in Israel. Now, in some ways, that's nuanced. Israel and most of the world was dominated by Roman rule. But within their own setting of what they could and could not have purview over, these were the top dogs. And you get this sense that they had regularly scheduled meetings, but this wasn't one of them. (laughs) We got to talk about this guy. This is getting crazy and out of hand. So they call this special meeting of these religious leaders, the top religious leaders of Israel, to have this group, to have this conversation. I want you to note the tone of their frustration. Look at what we read. What are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. I think it's a fascinating statement. What are we accomplishing? Like, like why would a, a religious leader of Israel be moved to say those words? meaning that we need to take some proactive step because whatever we're doing passively is allowing him to do these things. And my simple point is, what was wrong with healing blind and lame people? What really gets your goat about raising the dead? Like, why are we angry that Jesus is doing supernatural miracles that benefit people? It'd be one thing if he used supernatural powers to bring down calamity on us, but just the opposite, he's benefiting people and doing things we've never seen before. Why would I have a problem with that? Why would that cause me angst? Why would I want any of that to stop? But note, the next thing that they said is something we looked forward to a few weeks ago. A statement that truly evidenced their motives, evidenced their heart and how hard and how wrong it was. This is what we read just now. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And we'd still ask the question, and? What are we, what's the problem with that? But watch the next phrase. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. In your notes, for people who were afraid to lose their power and control of their religious systems, of their stronghold over people by their enforcement of the law, Jesus was an obvious foe. He had come to bring something infinitely better than that. And because he threatened not only their power base, but their status. I think it's so powerful that John gives this commentary or gives these quotes, gives us a a sneak peek into the heartbeat of this group of religious leaders that when they're honest, when they say the truth of what's motivating them, it's status and power. Jesus is going to break all that up for us and our national pride, our national system is more important than this religious rabbi bumpkin from Nazareth. So that's what's at stake. That's as they share clearly, that's their heartbeat. We are going to lose status, power, and control to a guy who doesn't play by the rules. He'd never done anything wrong, but doesn't play according to their religious systems. Listen, and what's fascinating is about the Pharisees, they have a keen understanding of what is, what is supposed to happen when Jesus performs miraculous signs. Remember what we just read a minute ago, if we let him keep going on like this, everyone will believe in him. Meaning that when Jesus does supernatural things, it elicits faith in other people. And that's exactly what the whole point was. Just a chapter ago in John chapter 10, these were words that Jesus said, verse 37, 
Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do, if I do them, even though you do not believe me, watch, believe the works. Even if you don't like how I teach, even if you can't get on board with the things that I'm saying, you have to do something with these supernatural miracles. They demand a response. So even if you don't believe what I say, believe what I do. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. So Jesus has made this statement all along. And that's why we see that his teaching that provided an understanding of the kingdom he came to bring, that his teaching was always accompanied by these works, by what John calls these signs, so that people didn't just have, okay, you're saying this truth, but they had something to back it up that was this calling card of the deity, who alone is able to do these types of things. What he's saying must be true. John, the gospel writer, we've seen most commentary writers, most theologians will just go to John chapter 20 and they'll go, this is the purpose of this gospel. Why did John write such a unique gospel compared to the other three? And we find it in chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So John says, Jesus did a whole ton of supernatural, miraculous things. I didn't have enough ink in the quill to do all that. But look what he says, but these, meaning these signs that I have included, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's as clear as it can be of a purpose statement. This is why I write this book to you, that you might believe in what happens and that by believing you may have life in his name. So all these things we're seeing now as we hit John chapter 11, all these things are are pressure pointing to a head. They're galvanizing together of both Jesus's overt demonstration of being Messiah and then those who are plotting against him. Both things are coming. You can see the drama. John writes this gospel so thoughtfully and beautifully and it's gonna climax in conflict. But here's the wild thing. So a few weeks ago, we looked ahead to this part I just read in John 11, where the chief priest lays it out real clearly and says, this is the problem. We've got to shut this guy up or he's going to take away our power base. But I want to show you, I want to give you a glimpse into the next chapter, John 12, just so you can see the degree to which the Pharisees were going to go to make this all go away. John chapter 12, verse 9, meanwhile, large crowd a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Look at verse 10. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. We'll take away the evidence that this ever happened. For on account of him, on account of him being raised from the dead, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. I just want to say, just for the record, that's a rough gig. You were sick. You died. Four days later, you're alive. And now they want to kill a perfectly healthy, risen from the dead guy. I just, guy can't win. Lazarus is in a rough spot. But see, see how this insidious desire to remain in control, to remain in power, what degree will it go? We're going to kill everyone who's had any connection. Let's remember, this isn't the mafia. This isn't the mob. These are religious leaders. And I want you to see how far off the edge of what God had called them to do and be about. They're living in this no man's world worse. They're living under satanic influence to accomplish what Satan had always desired. And that's what we're going to see next. Number two in your notes Though there was human and satanic participation in Jesus' death, it was his mission to give his life away. Though there was human and satanic participation in Jesus' death, it was his mission to give his life away. John chapter 11, verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, he spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you 
that one man die for the people, then the whole nation, then, the, then that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. This is such a significant passage related to the way that God accomplishes his will, sometimes in spite of human interaction and participation, and other times in light of human action and participation. It's this wonderful confluence of things about how a sovereign God ultimately always gets his will done, and yet how humans interact with it, and even other spiritual forces. So this passage has a lot going on. We see Caiaphas, the high priest, who presided over the Sanhedrin, this group of 70 leaders, and he says what probably brought the conversation to a close. He's listening, and they're debating what they ought to do, and he probably gives this summary statement, you don't know anything. Let me state it and lay it out real clearly for you. Jesus must die. It seems that it wasn't simply because they thought that what Jesus was doing was wrong. This is the fascinating thing. Nowhere in John's gospel do we hear about these religious leaders saying, we've got to stop Jesus because he's doing something wrong. Their comments always reflect, we've got to stop Jesus because he's messing with our status. He's messing with our power. He's messing with our control. He said it wasn't going to be profitable for them. He says a very interesting line, it is better for you. So he's talking to this group of male religious leaders of Israel. It's better for you. It's better for us all if this one guy dies for the sake of what we get to keep in place. I love the way that Carson said it. Look at this quote. When Caiaphas argues that Jesus must die for the people, he is using sacrificial language. He certainly did not mean this in a Christian sense. He probably meant that Jesus was to be devoted to death. That's a very powerful former covenant Old Testament phraseology, that this idea that this must happen in order to be the substitute for something else. Devoted to death, sacrificed as a scapegoat, in order to spare the nation and its leaders. Both Caiaphas and John understand Jesus' death to be substitutionary. Either Jesus dies or the nation dies. So it's very powerful language to think that basically he is this sacrificial lamb from Caiaphas' standpoint so that we can maintain our leadership and power over the people and from John's standpoint so that Jesus might save the world. So using the same language, the same um, concepts, but at the end of the day with much different results and much different purposes. This was an ends justifies the means kind of debate. And if you've ever been in one of those conversations, you've realized on the backside, whatever you come up with out of that conversation always is a poor decision. But this is worse than a poor decision about Jesus's future this is a murderous intent. It galvanized them, and all the more they plotted to take his life. They were going to plan to murder their own long-awaited Messiah, that one who had been promised by Yahweh all the way back in Genesis 3 that he would come and be a deliverer. He would be the one who would make the way right. The snake crusher had arrived, and they want to crush him. The ironies are powerful all throughout. And I would say that's at least how it appears to us from the human conversation going on in the Sanhedrin in John 11. But from the full vantage point, when you pull back and you see all that's going on, you see all that's in play, this was always the evil intent of God's enemy, of Satan himself. It was his intent at the very beginning not only to deceive Adam and Eve, so that they might live apart from God's design, but in that, to sever God from his created order, to sever God from those he had made in his own image, then and always. So when the Bible talks about Satan not only being God's enemy, but ours, it is very appropriate language. 
This same gospel writer in a vision he had in, John, in Revelation, I'm sorry, chapter 12, a vision of a dragon coming to try to destroy this woman and, and the child she was giving birth to, this image, this vision is all about Messiah being born into the world. He writes of the victory that came in a very unexpected way through this lamb's death. Revelation 12:10. then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser, another uh, descriptor of Satan, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them, day, uh, accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down, has been defeated. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. And so the reality is, is the way that Satan is undone, the way that he is defeated, is actually at the cross. Something that he was wringing his hands and plotting with great joy and certainty, this will be it. I'm gonna get rid of God's anointed leader, never understanding that that was always the plan. Always the mission was to give his life away. Paul wrote in the same vein, the same concept to the Christians at the church at Colossae. Have how Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross was anything but a defeat. It looked that way from a human perspective for sure. But at the fullest extent, the understanding of all that was going on at the cross that day, it was that which defeated the dark spiritual powers that held sway over us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, when you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Look at verse 15. And having disarmed, think about what that word means. It means once they were armed. Okay, I'm not in law enforcement, but that's a pretty good understanding. Someone who is armed, to disarm them means they no longer have a weapon in their hands. So they have been disarmed. They no longer have the power that they had at one time. He disarmed the powers and authorities. <clears throat> he made a public spectacle of them. How? Triumphing over them by the cross. The cross is where the victory happens. It's so upside down. It's so not the way we would normally think. That looks like defeat. But in God's incredible sovereign plan, it was always the way to victory. It's this unique language, though, I want to settle on for a few minutes before we're done today. This unique language that John uses that I want to draw your attention to. Because John now writes some commentary. It wasn't only for the Jewish nation. Remember, that's what Caiaphas had said that for the nation, Jesus must die, John's gonna say, no, no, no. It's not about for any political group of people or ethnic group of people, but it's for the children of God. Look at that phrase. But also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. We just spent the month of September looking at, realistically, six different metaphors for the church. And one metaphor that we didn't look at but is so striking and so appropriate is this metaphor presented today, that we are the family of God. We are brothers and sisters who have a common father. In your notes, the church is made up of adopted children from all of the nations, scattered children who have a common father and a common name. That is who we are. That is one of the right metaphors for what the church is understood to be is the family of God, brother and sister, joined together because of what God has done in adopting us into his family. Paul would explain this powerful concept of who the children of God are and how they're not necessarily one unique nation that God had chosen centuries before. Look at this from Romans chapter 9, verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So there's some distinguishers. On the contrary, it, will, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Why does Paul make that point? Abraham had more than one son. 
multiple children over Abraham's lifetime. The Bible records that he had, but it's only through Isaac. Read on. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Can I just have you think about something really, what should be really wild for you to think about? Here we are in the 21st century, Southern California. You are living your life in terms of whatever your family situation is. You're living your life related to whatever job or career your situation is. You're living your life based on whatever challenges or joys you're facing today. All those things are true of you. But here's the thing that truly should blow your mind. That when God said to Abram, it is through Isaac. It is through Isaac that salvation is going to come. If you have placed your faith in Jesus and you are part of God's family, he was talking about you. Thousands of years ago, he was talking about you. You who would, when hearing this great opportunity, this great invitation, along with the work that God was doing to change an unspiritual heart, meaning a heart that was spiritually dead. God was doing something, quickening, awakening you. And in that moment, when you heard the truth, along with God's spirit doing something to wake you up, you came to saving faith and you were included in the family of God. You are one of his kids. You have brothers, you have sisters, not just in this room, not just in this community, not just even on the globe right now, but all throughout human history beginning when God said, it's through Isaac that I'm going to bless the nations by selecting out a unique people that are mine. If that doesn't give you a sense of just perspective, if that doesn't give you just a sense of gratitude that you were chosen and included long before you had a clue who God was and what he was doing, I don't know how to help you, okay? That's all I got. Metaphor for the church is God's children, his family. It's a recurring image that John the gospel writer talks about. Look at what he said in John 1. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, he gave the opportunity to become children of God. Like we just said, children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Uniquely chosen and born of God. First John chapter three, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. There's an exclamation point. This is great news, can you even imagine? And this is what we are. That's an appropriate understanding, an appropriate term. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And as wonderful as everything I've just said is and as true as it is, I want you to note this interesting describer that John uses about us. You see, when I read John 11 and I read John talking about the children of God, uh, uh, we've just seen it, a theme he uses all throughout his writings, I would have expected him to write something about being the children of God who are redeemed to the Father, who are who are made new or who are brought into eternal life, something like that. But he uses a very different phrase. He uses this phrase to bring them together and make them one. To bring them together and make them one. That's what God has done through the son, through the sacrifice that Caiaphas, as unspiritual, ungodly as he was, made this prophetic statement that's what this sacrifice was going to do. It was going to bring them together 
and make them one. Now we're forecasting a few chapters out, literally in days, this would have been a few days later. John chapter 17, verse 20, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, watch, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Watch what happens then. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. God's family does not have a common geopolitical base. God's family does not have a common ethnicity. God's family does not have these things that we would typically see as what binds us together or gives us barriers to others. We saw this a few weeks ago when we looked at the church as sojourners. And this service, we clapped aloud. Praise God, it's not only Americans who are going to be in heaven. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be represented. In your notes, what we have is a common father who has adopted us through the sacrifice of his one-of-a-kind son. And as his children, there is an expected unity that extends beyond barriers that would normally divide us. There is an expected unity that extends beyond barriers that would normally divide us. I've been on the planet for 50 years. I've been involved in church at whatever level my entire life. I can honestly tell you without trying to be dramatic, there has never been a time in my lifetime that we have needed to hear this more about the need to be a united people around the things that Jesus says unites us, which is him. We live in these divided states of America. Everyone has an opinion about everything, including those in this room. Let me show you what I mean. Randy, Shelley, good to see you today. How you doing? Good. Good to see you. I'm going to ask you, you don't have to like, tell me what it is, but just to ask you, related to things in our world that are very divisive right now, vaccines, masks, political parties, etc. do you have opinions on these things? Yeah, I have opinions. Good, thanks. Blake, how you doing, man? Good. Guys, sorry on the cameras, I went to the darkest place in the room, but I knew Blake was over here. Blake, you're a junior in high school. Things we just talked about, vaccines, masks, political parties, do you have some opinions on those things? You don't know Randy and Shelley probably really well. You probably have never talked about these same opinions or things like that. You don't know. But I'm just going to tell you, if your opinions on any of those matters are different than theirs, and Randy and Shelley, if your opinions on any of those matters are different than Blake's, I'm really glad to call you both friends. I'm really glad to love you. No matter if your opinions on those things, things that are not core biblical beliefs, are different than mine. Crazy thought. Your views and opinions on those matters, you could all be similar and I could be different. <gasps> I hope you would love me. Right? And, and this is our problem. Things that are really hot in our world those of us who've been on the planet for a while, things have been hot before. Maybe not as crazy all at once, but they've been hot before. But this is how we see Jesus' maturity is not hoisting up our opinions on every single matter and saying, this is what matters most in my life right now. Jesus matters most in your life now, yesterday, and tomorrow. So here's my point. You can have different opinions on those matters than I have, than each other. No problem. Get that. We do live in America. We are Christians who are placed here. But this text from John 11, Jesus' prayer in John 17, it doesn't allow us to start fracturing because we disagree on these matters. 
It says, in light of our differences, right? What unites us is a risen Savior. What unites us is a God who has called us into his family and calls us his children. That's where we find unity. We always have. Unity doesn't mean that all of God's children agree on all these issues, on things that are biblical, not essentials. But it does mean that we love each other despite what our views may be. And I want you to know, if you have a view, if you think your view on one of these or other divisive issues is different than mine, please don't for a moment think that affects my love for you. My hope is that it would be reciprocated as well. Because that's, that's what we have to keep leaning to. How does scripture be our authority in difficult times when opinions run so wild? Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Finally today, quickly, number three. We ought to expect Jesus to be strategic with his timing in our lives as evidenced by his strategic timing while on earth. We ought to expect him to be strategic with timing because of how strategic he was then. John eleven fifty four. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to, this, to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. One of the things that we have seen repeatedly, John has done an amazing job in his gospel representation of Jesus's life and ministry of talking about Jesus's strategic timing. He said it again and again, Jesus, it is not my time. So that means I'm not going to Jerusalem or I'm not gonna be near where I may be arrested, but there will be a time when it is my time and I will be there. So all throughout John's gospel, more than any of the other three, he references Jesus's strategy with time, saying this is not it, but it's coming. A simple question if people then who walked with Jesus didn't understand his timing and purpose, simple question for you and I today, 2,000 years later, why would we think that it's odd that we don't understand Jesus' timing and purpose? Think about that for just a minute. People he was literally walking with, his 12 closest friends, were constantly scratching their head, what are you doing? Why this? Why now? Why not now? If they didn't understand Jesus' unique sense of strategic timing, how on earth do we think we should in the issues that we face and what we go through? Some of us are still baffled and confused when it seems like God is running behind, when it seems like he didn't show up when I needed him, when it seems like he was not paying attention. I just want to say to you, I have some things in my 50 years on the planet where I still scratch my head and go, God, I don't get that. So you're in good company if you're here today and going, yeah, I, I don't know where God was at with this. I don't know why he did what he did or why he didn't do what I wanted him to do, whatever your thing is. But can I just say this? Can you and I learn to set aside our limited perspective and be okay with the fact that Jesus' eternal perspective gives him the right kind of timing and purpose to do what needs to be done? If people couldn't see it then, why on earth do I think I can detect it now? In your notes, narratives like this should keep communicating to us that we don't get it. But praise God, he does. This should communicate we don't understand Jesus' timing and strategy, but praise God, he does. The perspective of our all-knowing Father should provide us comfort and confidence that he's got it and that he's got us. Walk in the unity that is intended through the accomplished mission of Jesus that makes us children of God. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. As a people, I believe all of us in theory want to lean into John's commentary in this passage.
that you would bring us from all these different places and walks of life to fulfill your promise made through Abraham, that through Isaac, your people would be reckoned, redeemed. But God, theory breaks down in the reality of what we're living through in a very divisive time, in a time where we have many opinions about many things. So my prayer is this, would you keep bringing us back to understanding your desire that we be a people who are united in our Savior, united by a Father who not only pulls us together from this community, this part of the Inland Empire, but Jesus, you bring your church together from all over the planet. We want to know and walk in that unity. And like you pray in John 17, so that the world will know. God, if there was ever a time for a people to be united around the thing that matters most with the greatest message ever communicated, now's the time. So I pray you would help us lower the value of opinions and lift the value of our unity in Christ. And God, would you do amazing things in and through us as a body, brother and sister to one another, but in our community, would people see Jesus when they see us? If you're here today and you would say, Todd, I have never taken any step to join the family of God to be one of his children, I just want you to know I have great news for you today. When you A, admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. B, when you believe that Jesus is the only savior available this Jesus that we've talked about today who raised the four-day dead Lazarus, when you believe not only in his works, but in his person of who he is and what he came to do, then you see, choose. Choose to place your faith, your confidence, your trust in what Jesus has done, not in what you can do to somehow be pleasing to a holy God, yet living out a life, living out his example moving forward. That that is the response to the gospel, and I pray and that another day would go by before you say, Jesus, I surrender. That's exactly what I want to do. Father, we love you. Give us grace this week <clears throat> to live out your unified expectation, and would we find great joy in rallying around what matters most. We love you, and we pray in the great name of Jesus.